Hello? Anyone out there? <sighs> Probably not. Once again, this is Pete broadcasting live and alive from 90.1 KZSU Studios in Stanford, California. Or at least what remains of it. Given the virulent epidemic of swine flu, the ensuing global panic, the financial collapse, and the seemingly inexplicable global nuclear showdown which may or may not have been caused by alien invasion, I assume not many people are listening right now. Or at least not many who aren't flesh-eating, flu-infested, post-apocalyptic zombie types. If you are listening, if you can hear my voice and aren't one of the aforementioned zombie types, Give us, or me, a call at 650-723-9010. Granted, most telecommunication lines have been bombed out or destroyed by enemy combatants. But, uh, get in touch somehow. However you can. For gosh sakes. Oh. Here at KZSU Studios, we've got plenty of cans of tuna, jars of olives, and military-grade food bars. We could feed at least two people for about five years on that stuff. You see, our chief engineer, before being brutally attacked by a roving band of warriors, was a bit of a survivalist and not only reinforced the studio with enough concrete and insulation to prevent radiation poisoning, he also stocked it with plenty of rations. Thanks, Mark. I hope you're, a lot, you're doing well wherever you are, in whatever state of Oh, God. Uh, anyway, uh, luckily for me, Pete, I happened to be DJing during my 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. shift, playing my signature mix of post-punk and experimental surf rock, when the proverbial crud really hit the fan. Oh, the horror. Uh, so it's just me here, alone. Huh. And Angie, if you're alive, which you probably aren't, Will you please just forgive me? It's the friggin' apocalypse, for gosh sakes. Huh. Anywho, here are some tunes. Enjoy. From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. That was Pete, broadcasting live from a parallel universe in which the apocalypse happened yesterday. The rest of us are still here. It's 6 p.m. June 4th, 2009 at 90.1 KZSU Stanford in California. We are continuing on with our day-to-day lives. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project, and for our second-to-last episode of our second season, we bring you stories about the end, the fin, the finito, not the alpha, but the omega of the world, the apocalypse. The apocalypse has gotten a bad rap. People think of the apocalypse as a gloomy thing, but to us it sounds kind of like fun. To some of us it even sounds funny. Towards the end of the world, lots will happen, very quickly. There will be no waiting around, no bureaucracy, no drawn-out debates, no red tape. When things really fall apart, life could become more eventful, more efficient, really. So today we want to open the forbidden box and look at the apocalypse through a more light-hearted lens. Through fiction, poetry, memoir, ballad, vignette, and interview, through humor, irony, and song, we'll enter this discussion playfully, and by the end of the hour, we hope to help you, dear listener, come to better terms with some of life's larger questions. Given the last year of events, we've decided to jettison the question, will it happen, in favor of the question, what will it mean, and what will we do when it does happen? Because it does seem like it's going to happen, right? For today's show, we decided to presume that the apocalypse will happen. Under the intense stress and in the midst of such uncertainty, what will you do, and who will you be? waiting at the lost We are mostly familiar with the Apocalypse in the New Testament. 
but the word apocalypse comes from older Greek origins. Apo, away, or to lift, and kalypsis, cover. The word apocalypse, then, originates from the term to uncover or to disclose. So experiencing the apocalypse could be as simple as seeing things as they really are. This kind of makes sense if you think about it. After all, how many people see things as they really are? When the apocalyptic veil is lifted, maybe we'll all be horrified. Or maybe we'll just be curious. Maybe when people see what's really going on, things will get better. It could be a party. That's what we're hoping for, at least. Today's stories start in the realm of fiction and work their way towards the reality of our situation on Earth. This is such a mind-blowing show that it is in a record eight parts. One short story, one excerpt from a novel, two poems, one interview, one story booth vignette, and one ballad. And of course, the occasional update from our distant correspondent, Pete. All written and produced by students and staff at Stanford. This is a more collaborative effort than usual, featuring the work of many storytelling producers and our friends, many of whom are here with me in the studio live. Say hello, everyone. Hey, hey there. Hello. hello, I'm Micah Craddy. For our first story of the show, I bring you my remarkable tale of personal growth as an apocalyptic demigod. Oh, hello, is this is this on? Excuse me, everyone, excuse me. Sorry, I, I don't mean to disturb you. Uh, if you could just set down your shovels and your pickaxes for just a few moments, I, I have some things to say. Um... People say I've changed recently, and it's not just because I spent two months in the casket of Ra soaking up his powers. I mean, sure, that probably has something to do with it, but it's tangential at best. It's true, I didn't used to be able to call down pestilence from the heavens or raise souls from the underworld, but that's not what people are noticing. Okay, so you might be distracted by the crackling aura of my power or by the growth of my beak, but it's the changes inside of me that are truly remarkable. And I'm not just talking about my ability to crush things with my mind. It's hard to see my maturity as a human god being through the piled bones of my enemies. But if you look beyond them, you'll realize that I've gone through some remarkable growth. You might think that vanquishing armies with targeted meteor strikes or subjugating the nations of the world to my despotic rule shows my changes, but really, it's what I learned from that. My changes didn't just happen all of a sudden. Other than the horns, those did sprout up out of nowhere. No, this has been a process. When I was on the fields of Athenry, raining boiling acid on the plague-ridden people of Ireland, I thought to myself, damn, this is some heavy <laughs> Forgive my language. It might have been a one-time thing, but it happened again a week later, when I was flooding Vancouver with the foam-capped waters of the Pacific. As the citizens desperately tried to reach higher ground, I had to step back and gain some perspective, man. I had just unleashed a flock of flesh-eating vultures when I really took stock of things. I mean, there I was, already the emperor and beloved deity of half the world. But was I happy? I don't think it fully sunk in until a month later when the last free remnants of humanity tried to resist me in Jakarta. Between bouts of laughter over their attempts to fell me with mortal weapons, I realized my place here. I quickly set off the Merapi volcano and, as the lava chased my foes into the waiting mouths of my shark servants, I retreated to the temple my vassals built out of human skulls for some serious reflection. I thought to myself, what is the point of global conquest if you have to melt the brains of your closest friends to get there? Now, I know you're probably thinking that it's pretty convenient I went through this realization after I enslaved the human race and several lesser races. But I really have changed. Just the other day, a rebellion flared up in Rio de Janeiro, and I only ordered the sacrifice of half the rebel families. And their deaths were painless too, mostly. A complete 180 from last month in Orlando. I want to assure you that from this point forward, I plan on being the best supreme god and ruler of the planets Earth and Mars that I can be. I'm thankful you took some time out of carving Mount Everest into my likeness to listen to what I have to say. It was difficult to get that off my chest, but you were a very supportive audience. Now, if you could begin working again, you have a lot of work to do before your three-hour night rest period. 
Thank you very much. Micah Craddy graduated from Stanford in 2008 and is a senior producer for the Storytelling Project. People Say I've Changed was recently published in McSweeney's magazine. Our second story is a poem by Adrian Chung. Adrian looks at the apocalypse with perfect 2020 hindsight. Dr. Excelsior, if you received my letter at the end of time, would you read it or would you run? Fourteen seconds ago, I remember the light at dawn. Nine seconds into the future, I'll remember the cold. Time slows. Out the window, a red tide rises above the house, the foam blooming over the Transamerica Tower. I tuck baby's breath into my lapel. I try to forget my father first. Twenty-five seconds ago, I remembered the light at dawn. It's cold. My father's truck is now empty, as it always was. In sixteen seconds, I'll have never known him. I begin the letter. Dear Madeline, a black snake inches over my shoulder. I name it Madeline and kiss it. I hands for you. My hands for you. Adrian is a senior at Stanford. She just received the Ermie Hardy Poetry Prize for her poem, Interference. Dr. Excelsior is inspired by the character from The Watchman, Dr. Manhattan. My name is Lee Constantino. I'll be reading a sample from my first novel, Pop Apocalypse. This scene takes place about halfway through the book and introduces us to the main character's brother, Elijah Apocalypse, a Christian punk singer. Here comes Elijah Apocalypse, strutting through the lobby of the Hotel California, bandmates following at a respectful distance, all on the way to Eye for an Eye's Jalapeno Pepper Red Tour Bus, the Raptor Bus, waiting by the curb. His spiked hair stands tall, a still-under-construction cathedral of red and black and silver dye. Extremely tight, tan leather pants hug his thin thighs, leaving little to the imagination. Over his black mesh wife-beater hang diamond-encrusted crucifixes on platinum chains. Densely lined tattoos cover his body with, among other things, representations of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Numerous, somewhat angry seraphim, and on his chest, visible through the black mesh, the face of an apoplectic man, silver sword jutting from his mouth like a metal tongue. On the backs of either hand are brands made with a hot iron shaped like Jesus' fishes. Multiple safety pins, seeming in this context very unsafe, hang from his earlobes. Some media sphere critics maintain that he wears too much mascara. Behind him trail his bandmates, bassist Gideon Finch and drummer Rapture Rodriguez, decked out in similar get-ups but neither holds a candle to Elijah's inner blowtorch. Elijah practically metabolizes limelight. Young women mob around him, hungry for his rapturous energies. He seems not to notice them, though occasionally his eyes flick behind his lightly tinted sunglasses at some of the more ostentatiously slutty ones. Even these glances come fleetingly, hard to make out through the haze of tinted glass and mascara, at least to Elliot, who is presently making his way through this sea of skank. Why aren't you with a girl, shouts some reporter disguised as a teeny bopper fan. A volley of camera flashes strafe Elijah, which makes him pause en route to the rapture bus. A more sober question flies inward. Is it true what your website says, that you've reclaimed your virginity? Markets churn. Elijah's star soars. EDV, 636, 634, 634 and a half, plus one half, according to Elliot's media shades. When I decided recently to get closer to God, radiating like the sun, Elijah projects confidence and self-assurance. I decided I, like, needed to reclaim my virginity. 
I had been sinning, and I hadn't known real love with a woman, only the pleasures, the corrupt and seething pleasures of the flesh. So I reclaimed my virginity, reclaimed, reclaimed, something like the Holy Ghost manifesting in it. The woman mob mumbles amen under its collective breath. So there it goes, ladies. There it goes. Elijah brushes the exposed arm of a girl with red and purple spiked hair. Her arm erupts into a field of goose flesh. I recommend that you consider this. Your purity is the most precious thing you have. Consider it, right? From behind the partition, Elliot waves at Elijah, but his younger brother keeps talking. Me being a virgin again is really a part of who I am as a Christian, part of my spiritual journey. In my new, pure state, I've learned so much about myself. Life has become so much richer. Three things have become more important to me than anything, fresh and rich and crisp. One, to rock hard with my vintage Fender Stratocaster. Real hard, harder than anyone else. Two, to love you, my great fans. Three, and most important, to sing for Jesus, to get punked for Jesus, to go crazy for Jesus. Elijah finally notices Elliot, his frantic arm gestures. Yo, ladies, you've got to excuse me now. My bro needs a moment of my time. Disappointed, the girls give Elliot enough room to climb over the barricade. When a teenage girl with a shaved head and piercings all over her face tries to follow, bodyguards move in and beat her back with soft batons. You look terrible, bro, Elijah says. Just terrible. Elijah is more classically handsome than Elliot, a few inches taller, with a full head of wavy blonde hair, when not dyed, and a straighter posture, the product of many hours in the gym. Though his body language screams don't f*** with me in a thousand subtle ways, Elliot knows this is all so much posing. His brother is only being oppositional for Christ. I look pretty much the way I feel. You look fine, though. Yeah, bro. So excited he speaks in sentence fragments. Big night. First time Eye for an Eye has played for such an important crowd. It's our big shot. We got this new song, our new single, Grapes. Yo, listen, bro, listen. It goes like this. In a Holy Spirit-possessed voice, some heaven-forged fusion of punk, heavy metal, and hip-hop, Elijah sings. The wine press will smash the grapes. The grapes are you motherfuckers. Your insides are coming out. Jesus is coming to get you, you motherfuckers. You know who you are, he's coming to take you, motherfuckers, take you away to hell. Elijah used to have such a beautiful voice, almost angelic. Elliot remembers how his brother would sing, despite his youthful rebelliousness, in the choir of Shining Ministries. Even back then, he was the most popular boy in his age group, and the most talented. While at Princeton, Elijah discovered his love for evangelical Christianity and punk rock at about the same time and saw in their synthesis the most authentic picture of his soul. In his collegial enthusiasm for the Sex Pistols and the Ramones, Elijah began systematically destroying his singing voice, hoping to sound authentically DIY, like some random Princeton-educated dude who decided to pick up an electric guitar and say <laughs> you to the man. Granted, Elijah wanted to say <laughs> you to the secular humanist man, but the man's still the man, whoever he happens to be. Bandmates jump in to sing the disharmony, and Elijah completes the song with great gusto. Jesus will blow you up. He will pop all you motherfuckers like the grapes you are. He will squash you flat, flat, flat in the white press. Let him save you now, you sinful motherfuckers. Let him save you before you can't be saved no more. Elijah smiles with satisfaction, an artist discovering with some surprise his own powers. Eye for an eye is stoked. Their fans scream, almost riotous with joy. Now imagine that, with screech and feedback, a million screaming girls throwing their panties at us, me using my guitar at the end to smash an amp. Imagine that. Oh yeah, Lige, that's great. Your best work yet. It has, I don't know what I should call it, integrity. But I'm not up for talking about your artistry right now. I've had a very bad day. Yeah, bro. Sure looks like it. Are you going to the Getty Center party? I need to get there. We're boarding the Rapture bus right now. Let me come with you. I need to fix myself up. Yo, family first, right, bro? He says, as much for the cameras as for Elliot. We've got a bathroom in the bus, probably even a spare tux for you. Elliot follows Elijah and his bandmates into the black bowels of the red rapture bus, practically a house on wheels, grateful for his brother's open heart and easy nature, a decided contrast to his more discordant public face. The rapture bus disembarks from the pickup area and bullies its way through a cloud of videographers onto the open road. Out there in the media sphere, 
the fan scholars already sense that something strange has happened to Elliot, something bad. 10,000 furious omni-searches begin. Countless new forum topics open on Elliot's den. Nervous inquiries go out to professional analysts. Many of Elliot's shareholders will have a difficult time sleeping tonight. graduate student in the English department at Stanford and the fiction editor for the Storytelling Project. Pop Apocalypse was published in May by HarperCollins. Pick one up at your local bookstore. Our poetry editor, Liz Bradfield, also interviewed Lee about his book, and this will be posted with the show on our website and on iTunes. Everything it seems I like's a little bit sweeter, a little bit fatter, a little bit harmful for me. And then there's those other things, which for several reasons we won't mention. Everything about them is a little bit stranger, a little bit harder, a little bit deadly. This is Daniel Steinbach. I've been thinking about this word apocalypse. We heard earlier that it doesn't mean the end, it's the revelation before the end. And while we can debate the transhuman singularity or the end of the Mayan calendar, there's a sense in which we'll each have a personal apocalypse. It's not a matter of when, it's, it is It's not a matter of if, but when. It's the personal apocalypse, it's death. Whether you're getting hit by a bus, or spending a year dying of cancer. It's the time you wonder, you know, what was it all about? Was it worth it? Did I make enough money? Did I make enough love? This is a song I wrote to unpack apocalypse, both personal and cosmic. It's a bit of musical theater I staged with Phil Narodick, Kat Fong, and John Mulrow at that ghostly synergy circus last month. We had the whole crowd waltzing by the end. Seventeen years ago today We heard young Lucy died She was well known to associate With those from the other side Where well, Lucy, she was an angel Of mercy divine And angels are known for tangles Late on the eve of New Year's Day At a ball with gentry and wine A handsome young man, he caught her eye And crossed from the other side He said, lady, you look like an angel I feel I know you, I don't know why May I have this dance, I don't ask for much Just a little of your precious time They danced by the light of the silvery moon An angel and a man That was the last time we saw them alive They must have made other plans Yeah. 
Daniel Steinbach is a graduate student in design and education. Many people think that violets are blue thanks to lousy poetry. Now we are exiting the realm of fiction and slowly entering reality, like peeling away the layers of an onion. But first, another word from Pete, broadcasting live from the apocalypse, currently underway in a far-off galaxy. Hey there, it's me, Pete, again, your favorite doomsday DJ, spinning until, well, indefinitely. <laughs> if you're still listening, which you're probably not, because you're dead, it's time for the news. First up... In local news, the bunker-slash-studio I'm currently in is doing great. The generator is humming along fine, producing enough electricity for the one light bulb hanging from the ceiling and for the operation of the soundboard and microphones. Yesterday, I saw one leaky pipe that threatened to contaminate my air supply, but with a swift duct tape repair job, the situation has been neutralized. In other news, the rat and cockroach population appears to be stable. In politics, there are no more politics. As far as I can tell, all government bodies have now dissolved, leaving us survivors in a state of crippling anarchy and fear. But the weekend weather forecast is looking fairly hospitable. The gray haze of post-nuclear fallout should be clearing up for a spurt of unpredictable weather patterns due to global climate change and rising ocean levels. Don't forget to pack your sunscreen, or your parka, or your life draft. <laughs> uh, oh, <laughs> what's the use? This isn't fun anymore. Not without Angie. She and I used to have a show together. We actually met during the KZSU DJ training class when she played a mix of Scandinavian metal and Havana jazz for her demo, I knew she was the one. I asked her to co-host a show with me, and believe it or not, she said yes. And from then on, we met up every Thursday at 3 in the morning and played some awesome tunes. Uh, 
Oh, it was fantastic. She would play a song, then I would play a song. Our fingers would brush against each other as we adjusted levels on the soundboard. Oh, golly. <laughs> and we read public service announcements in sweet unison. Oh, it was a thing of beauty. Then I had to go and be an idiot. <sighs> oh. I co-hosted a show with another girl, okay? It was just one time. Oh, but Angie didn't want to DJ with me anymore. She felt betrayed. But it didn't mean anything, I swear. We only played early 90s indie pop. It was meaningless. It wasn't like with you, Angie. Oh, I would give anything to take back that night so you would have stayed with me at a regular 3 a.m. time slot. So you would have been safe in this bunker slash studio when the bombs fell and alien lasers fired and the zombie brain disease spread throughout the world. Oh. If you're listening, Angie, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm the last guy on earth. Will you talk to me now? Hey, it's Lee Constantino again. This is a conversation I had with Adam Johnson. Adam is the author of Parasites Like Us. He came into our deep underground bunker to give us a few thoughts on the apocalypse. My name's Adam Johnson. I'm a, a senior Jones lecturer here at Stanford. I teach creative nonfiction, fiction, and the novel salon, as well as the graphic novel. We've, uh, we've brought Adam in here today uh, to our underground bunker to uh, talk about the apocalypse. When do you think the world is going to end, Adam? The apocalypse as we think of it, meaning a sudden and irrevocable um, status of human beings, um, is kind of a myth. I don't think... Um, we, maybe we have a rapturous idea of something sweeping the world and we all just kind of fall prey to it. But I think apocalypses are slow and methodical and emotional mostly. Apocalypse has always been an idea that um, since I was a kid I've been kind of obsessed with. I read apocalyptic books as a kid. I uh, have always loved apocalypse, you know, cinema, etc. Um, you know, when I, was a, when I was a kid, I was about nine, and um, my parents um, had fought all the time, but I'd never seen it because they hid it from me. And um, they decided to get divorced, um, but they decided not to tell me about it. And so one day I came home from school, and the U-Haul, you know, was in the driveway. And my parents took me into the bedroom and sat me down, and they gave me the speech uh, beginning with how much they loved me, which is always a sign that you're doomed when people declare their love for you. And um, that notion that everything that mattered to you could end suddenly and without warning and without reason uh, became kind of one of the motifs of my life. There's a stupor that follows um, the dislocation and the dislodging of everything you know. I don't know if you've ever been in a place after a hurricane. Um, even though usually everyone lives, not often People don't die that much, but I have been, like, post-hurricane a couple times, and it's amazing the degree to which you can't relocate yourself in the world. I think, you know, we know what streets we live on, but really I think we navigate by where big trees are and billboards and landmarks and when sheds aren't there and trees aren't there. You can't recognize where you are or even know what's happening. My next question was going to be, how is the world going to end? Well, it's, there's no way to talk about, like, this large-scale human existence without sounding Malthusian about it. I think moments in which people suddenly disappear the way we imagine apocalypse are rare, like Pompeii. One moment there's a grand bang and, the, you know, the pyroclastic flow smothers everyone. Or the 1755 earthquake in Lisbon, which um, knocked the city down, burned it, right up until the tsunami hit. Mostly, uh, if you look at the Spanish flu, which uh, took 2% of the earth, you know, that's like one of the largest apocalypses of our time. And, um, uh, and yet, 
I wonder, I think the impact is emotional and about the narratives of people's lives and those grand disruptions in the, the continuum of how people live and build families and move toward meaning in the future. Um, even you take the Great Plague and the Black Plague, those are two events that um, you know, maybe took a fifth to a third of the planet. That's probably the biggest apocalypse we could think of. I also think of dinosaurs. Well, there have been several, you know, mass extinctions of, of animals. And if you think of North America, all the great uh, mammals of, um, of the continent disappeared within about 300 years at the end of the late Pleistocene. And nobody knows whether it was a virus brought over from the old world or whether it was hunting to depletion by uh, people who arrived about 13,000 years ago. But it's true that, um, you know, mammoths and mastodons and glyptodonts and camels and horses all went extinct not to return till the conquistadors came back. But of course in their place, with all those large herbivores gone, were room for hundreds of millions of bison, you know, who suddenly filled a niche and swarmed in. So I think when humans are tamped down, they'll spring back. So there's a downside and an upside to apocalypse. Well, the apocalypse, I think a lot of people love the idea of apocalypse because it's the idea of a complete fresh start. Mm -hmm. All the past is washed away. All your sins are gone. And you get to, should you live through the apocalypse, you get a new slate on things. Of course, nobody ever thinks that the apocalypse is going to happen to them. You know, I, I wrote a book about an apocalypse called Parasites Like Us. It was published by Viking in 2003. And for that book, I researched... Um, uh, narratives of people who'd survived, you know, great uh, climactic events. And um, a narrative that really kind of spoke to me was uh, a man named Dieter that uh, Werner Herzog did a documentary about who'd been a prisoner of war in Vietnam for several years. And um, in the basement of his house, he had a five-year supply of food just for himself because he was never going to be hungry again. And you hear um, narratives of people who survived Nanking things like that, and they will never be hungry again. And, um, you know, I was lucky enough to have um, relatives who lived through the Depression who um, were around long enough to tell their stories to me, and um, stories of shoveling snow for a quarter a day, you know, things like that, of literally eating inedible things here in America. And um, I think we have this notion that um, nothing will... Our plenitude can never run out. Though really, on the supermarket shelves, I think there's only like a day or two supply of food for the population, uh, should everyone try to demand it at once. If you knew that the world was going to end in about a week, what would you do with that week? I, I don't know if, I, if someone told me there was a week. I honestly think I would say, yeah, a week for everyone else, buddy. Mm -hmm. And I would load the muzzle rotor, loader into the back of the van and my... Um, big uh, rain barrels, and uh, we would hit the open road with some plastic tarps and make it. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think I believe you when I, you say the world's going to end in a week. Yeah. No, I don't really believe me either. Lee, do you think the apocalypse is funny? Depends what you mean by apocalypse. <laughs> Johnson is a senior Jones lecturer at Stanford. Everyone has some thoughts on the apocalypse, even if they're tucked way in the back of their minds. We wanted to see what was going on out there in the collective Stanford consciousness, so last week we took our recorders out for an afternoon on White Plaza. This is Killeen. 
When we marched into White Plaza with our microphones, cornered you with questions, distracted you on your way to class, pulled you off your bikes, we had a few very, very serious questions to ask you. When will the world end? How will it happen? And what, more importantly, will you do? Your answers range from the piously pure to the indulgently hedonistic, like these next few. My name is Jack, and I'm a Stanford student. Um, and Jack, when, when do you think the world will end, and how? I think it'll end sometime in the next couple hundred years by a meteor hitting the Earth and wiping us out. Let's say you're a survivor of this meteor attack. Um, it, it was in New Mexico, and you're, I don't know, in Massachusetts at the time. What will you do? So before, either I'd try to spend time with my family, or I'd get really wasted. Um, and after, if I survived, I would try to, uh, I guess, join a band of, of, um, or maybe join some sort of post-apocalyptic cults and, like, throw my lot in with them, see if we could make it through the end times. And what would your, like, best model of a post-apocalyptic cult be? Well, there'd be some sort of, uh, like, charismatic leader um, who would, I don't know, everything he said would be word and he would have complete power and his loyal follower, he would protect his loyal followers. and I'm a sophomore here at Stanford. So, Matt, when do you think the world will end? I think the world is going to end in the year 2012. In 2012, uh, the Mayans actually predicted that, um, that the world was going to end in that year, and I believe in what the Mayans say in the Mayan calendar. And when that happens, I think that uh, the world has to throw the biggest, baddest party that we've ever seen. going to be your role in the apocalypse is being a part of this biggest baddest party i hope to be one of the party organizers actually uh, my name is lucas laredo freshman here uh, from Austin, Texas. Well, they had the whole Mayan thing, right, 2012. I took a class on Mesoamerican history, and my teacher basically said that's not really what the case is. I think we should be hit by a comet at the same time as global warming just, like, turns the temperature up to 1,000 degrees, and then also we get eaten by polar bears while the Earth is exploding. I feel like if all those things happen at once, then there's a very good chance that it would probably turn out all right. What would I spend my last week um, I don't know, probably uh, either building a bunker to protect myself or having lots of sex or both. The only reason I would only have sex and not build a bunker is if the bunker didn't really matter. Then I would just, you know, have sex out in the open where it was nice and just like the more sex the better. Sacramento. Um, I'm Tabitha and I'm from Sacramento. Uh, do you have any opinions about the end of the world, when it's going to come and how it's going to go down? Well, I've heard a few rumors that it's going to end like 2012 or something like that, but from the Mayan calendars, I think. But I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I can believe that. Yeah, um, I've heard that too. Um, I really don't think it's really going to happen. They said that a while back that it was going to end in like 2005 and that didn't happen. We're still here, so... If the world does end in your lifetime uh, and you are have like a week left before sort of the day that it's going to happen, what are you going to do? Where are you going to be? I'd wrestle. I'd wrestle. I'd wrestle so. I'd wrestle the whole week straight. Like Roman Greco style? Uh, collegiate. collegiate. Just regular. Okay. Yeah. That's what i do for the whole week. <laughs> um, I would probably go to like Cabo or somewhere like really cool and 
hot and beachy kind of like and spend a lot of money and just live my life out. <laughs> yeah. Wrestling at the beach. I don't know. <laughs> interesting, interesting. And then there were those who chose the satisfactions of the soul over the pleasures of the flesh. I have a plan to actually go down to the radio station, KZSU, because that's a pretty strong bunker. It should be able to weather any storm. Uh, the door is locked so that if people with boards with nails in it come towards us, we'll be well defended against that. And it's just stocked with non-perishable canned goods, you know? You can eat non-perishable canned goods until the storm kind of clears up. I just need to make sure that... It, there are at least three women in there with me so that we can begin repopulating. Um, well, when the apocalypse comes, mostly um, I want to see a lot of buildings collapse. I think it would be just kind of beautifully poetic. Um, and also just like large piles of rubble and ruins kind of have almost this Ozymandias-like quality. If there was something great here, but really it's just another fickle attempt at impermanence. some of the good times we'd had. What would you say to your loved ones, do you think, like, just before, right before it happened? Well, it's, it's too bad it has to end, but it's, uh, it's, it, it's been a good ride. Killeen graduated from Stanford in 2008 and is an assistant producer for the Storytelling Project. Thanks to all the folks on White Plaza who contributed their stories. I'm a Stegner Fellow in Poetry at Stanford, and I want to read a poem um, not about uh, necessarily the biblical future apocalypse, but a moment when religion came to a place that hadn't really experienced it before. So this poem is taken from, um, from up in the northern Arctic on Hudson Bay about stories, biblical stories that arrived with Europeans. It's called A Lot of Giraffes. First, an alphabet set down, then the Bible turned to the languages of Labrador, of Unalaska, and thereby, in Nain, daily bread becomes pipsit, as in, give us this day our daily dried trout, fish flayed open and set to the long summer light, becoming winter's sustenance, tough, requiring time in the mouth. On Hudson Bay, the Cree tell tales of Noah, who they say drifted up and got frozen in, there are a lot of giraffes, for some reason, in their stories, long necks sun-colored and strange on the white, hard bay. And Noah's always screwing up, cold, stupid about hunting, rude, and so, in most versions, left by family and village to starve alone on the ark, a wealth of planks and ribs that could have been fire or sledge or paddle, but instead shook with lessening howls until ice cracked it. Meanwhile, the wife learned to flens, the kids to hunt walrus, and Noah, unable to translate his task, became a different story told in warm houses of ice. Liz Bradfield is the poetry editor for the Stanford Storytelling Project. Oh, 
Today's program was produced by pretty much everyone in the Stanford Storytelling Project, including our director, Jonah Willingans. Thanks to Pete, or Dan Hirsch, Micah Craddy, Adrian Chung, Lee Constantino, Daniel Steinbach, Killeen Hansen, and Elizabeth Bradfield for their contributions. Also to Adam Johnson for his interview. Original music was written and performed by Natalie Dawn. For their valiant engineering, thank you to Hannah Krakauer and Jack Wong. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity in the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would also like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West for their continued underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every lovely episode of the last two years of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes or on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. This week, two interviews will be posted with this show, one between Lee Constantino and Liz Bradfield about Lee's novel, and the second, a special interview with the executive director of the Long Now Foundation, Alexander Rose, about their 10,000-year clock. Tune in next week for the winning stories of our winter story contest, all of which contain a sentence that includes the phrase, and then I knew. For the Stanford Storytelling Project and KZSU Stanford, I'm Bonnie Swift. La vie s'empare de moi, mon cœur s'éteint. Je perds ma foi, mon cœur s'éteint. Je perds ma foi, ma foi, ma foi. Hi there, it's me, post-apocalyptic Pete again. Huh. And I don't know if I can do this anymore, listeners. I have a lifetime supply of tuna fish clean water and breathable air, and thousands and thousands of albums. But what's the point if there's no one to share it with? Oh man, this is really the pits. Maybe I should just go out into the streets and be swept away by oozing lava flows. Or maybe, maybe I should offer myself as a slave to our alien overlords. Or maybe, maybe I should just give my brains over to a family of hungry zombies you like that, wouldn't you? Oh, there is no hope. Everything is meaningless. <laughs> What's that? Who's there? Who's there? I have a crossbow and I'm not afraid to use it. This could be the end, listeners. Tune in next week for Endless Dead Air. <laughs> Pete? What? Is that really you? Oh, oh, oh my gosh. Angie, I didn't, I thought... Oh, well, after we got in that fight, I went up north to go camping in the Red Woods. I had some stuff to figure out, you know? Oh, cool. Yeah, sure. I somehow missed the apocalypse. You missed the apocalypse? Yeah, I know. Isn't that incredible? (laughs) Yeah. But that's beside the point. So I was driving around San Francisco looking for signs of life. And And, any hope? Oh, definitely not. Oh. But anyway, I turned the radio to KZSU and then I heard your voice. And? Pete, I had no idea you felt that way. Oh, Angie. Oh, Pete. Will you play music with me again? Until the end of time. And now, the Stanford Storytelling Project presents as a special addendum to the Apocalypse Show, an interview with Alexander Rose. We began this show with the premise that the world as we know it will indeed end one day.
All this apocalypse business begs the question, well, then what? What can last? What will survive in the long run? This is the kind of thing that the Long Now Foundation has been thinking about for a while. Headquartered at Fort Mason in San Francisco, all of their projects are set within a 10,000-year framework. The idea was to do some projects, some very long-term projects, as examples for long-term thinking and long-term thinkers. This is Alexander Rose, executive director of the Long Now Foundation. They have several projects in the works, and if you've heard of one, it's probably their 10,000-year clock. The first project that the Long Now Foundation was started around was that of a to build a 10,000-year all-mechanical clock. And that idea came from computer designer uh, Danny Hillis, who had been designing some of the fastest supercomputers in the world, and realized more and more that the space of slower um, was being underserved, and so designed basically the slowest computer in the world, the 10,000-year clock. They also host a monthly lecture series in San Francisco, where philosophers, artists, inventors, linguists, and other academics explore ideas of deep time. Whenever I go to these lectures, I always get the sense that the Long Now audience is a secret society of people who are at once skeptical and hopeful about the future of humankind. It's sort of ironic, really, that the people thinking about longevity, continuity, investment, and building for the faraway future are actually the best people to talk to if you want to know what to do in the short term. When history takes a turn, society, at least as we know it, snaps, and everything goes south. We do know, in looking back at the last 10,000 years, that there is no civilization that has lasted 10,000 years. Um, 10,000 years is basically how long man has been altering his environment to fit himself versus reacting to that environment. And so that's why we chose that time frame. It's when agriculture basically started after the last ice age. So anything that we design, we make assumptions that technology may drop off, that knowledge may be lost. That's the reason we're doing things like making it mechanical. We design all of our objects in a way for archaeologists to find um, and try and make as little assumptions about them as possible. You know, that's why it's not a big electronic clock. If you found an electronic object and your technology had dropped, or um, even if it hasn't, if you arrive there and it has a digital readout or something like that, there's nothing on. There's no way to determine how it worked, um, how the microprocessors worked. It's very opaque. So with mechanical objects, you can uh, piece together how they worked. In fact, one of the oldest astronomical clock examples in the world, or the oldest, is the Antikythera device, which was found at the bottom of the Mediterranean uh, near Greece. And it predates all other clocks of its um, type by almost a millennium, including all the gear work inside. And no one knows too much about it, but we do know that it was, a, it, through recreations, we know because it was mechanical, we've determined it was a clock that tracked the planets and the eclipses and moon and things like that. Designing for the 10,000-year future is no easy task. A lot can happen in 10,000 years. Alexander said that if we look at the great monuments that survive from the past today, the thing that interferes most with their preservation is actually human behavior. We seem to have an innate scavenging instinct. Up to now, we are at least as good at deconstruction as we are at construction. Things, especially valuable things, are likely to get taken apart for what some might call creative reuse? Maybe then, the best way to withstand the test of time is to just keep creating your monument, even if you've created it before, and as time and people take their toll, to keep creating it over and over. We also look at history a lot, so our, our best examples 
are looking at buildings that have lasted for over a millennia or several centuries and what has happened to them. And there's a lot of very interesting examples throughout history and some of the, the ones that we often recognize are things like the pyramids. Now the pyramids were built and then uh, raided and actually scraped of their outer most beautiful stonework only within a few generations of their completion. But they're still the pyramids, we still have them, they're iconic. So people kind of thought they stole the most valuable part of the pyramids, which was the gold inside and the, the marble on the outside to build the mosques of, of Cairo, but um, we still have them. So that's an interesting method where you, you allow a certain amount of theft to happen. Similarly, the Taj Mahal, uh, when it was built, was encrusted all the way throughout with little gems. And when it was uh, sacked for the last time by Britain, instead of burning the building down, which they did to a lot of other buildings, or destroying it, they spent a long time prying all these jewels out of the walls. So they felt as, they had, as though they had stolen the value of the building, but we still have the building, it's still beautiful, um, and the gems are actually the least important part of that. So one strategy is to put things out that people can steal to make them feel as though they have taken the value of the object, even though it still is there. And I would say over the long term, our biggest danger is the thieves, the people melting down all the metal for the next war effort or whatever it is. My favorite example, and one that involves humans, is the temple at Issei in Japan. By all accounts, it's been around for at least a millennium and by some accounts for almost two millennium. And it's made of rice paper and wood and thatch, of very ephemeral materials. But the way it's lasted is that every 20 years they build a brand new one right next to the current one in these alternating sites. And so every 20 years, which is basically one generation, a master carpenter teaches the next master carpenter how to build this Shinto temple. And it's allowed Shinto religion to kind of last through all the other religions that have swept through Japan by this very physical reminder of and act of rebuilding the temple. So I like that one, that it, that continuity of humanity has allowed it to work. And that's very much the way we're building the clock, is that we expect a certain amount of maintenance, we expect people to wind it, we also expect that they might not wind it for a long time, and how and we designed in ways for it to recover from those kind of situations. In many respects, the Long Now's thinking is apocalyptic thinking. After a civilizational collapse, what will survive? And in hindsight, what will our descendants think of us? The 10,000-year clock is still in the planning phases. After the clock is built, it's just going to sit there, ticking. I asked Alexander what value the clock of the long now would have if someone stumbles upon it 10,000 years from now. Well, I think a common scenario that we uh, run internally is what if we found the clock today? And in a sense, things like the Antikythera device are that. It's a 2,000-year-old astronomical clock. It's not monument in scale, it's a little desktop thing. But by finding an object like that, you do realize, you start, you get a sense of values of the people that created it, and I would say that we would, we hope that if someone found it, that they would get a sense that the people of that past cared about that future. So, I mean, I think that's what we want to convey to those people, but I, the reality of this project is it's very much about the present. I mean, it's an audacious project. I mean, it's it's difficult and and almost crazy. So the idea is to inspire people, new myths, new stories, stories that people tell to other people and say, well, these crazy people are building this 10,000-year clock. Why don't we be conservative and make a 100-year plan for our company would be a success in our minds. Maybe the 10,000-year clock is preparing the way for the best of all possible post-apocalyptic worlds. After a serious crash, this would be a great way to approach society, designing for the future rather than just the present. Could a new deep-time paradigm heal the rift between form and function that plagues our material culture today? Should everything be thought of in the long term? Alexandra pointed out that we don't have to wait until after a huge crash to start thinking in terms of the long now, and maybe not everything should be thought of in the long term. 
you know, there's fashion and art and parts of technology that by definition have to stay short term and fast and crazy um, in order to feel fresh and interesting and new. And I think that there's parts of always knowing your past that is debilitating. Choosing the things that are worth thinking long term about. This was something that we worked on early on. And Brian Eno and Stuart Brands, two of our founding board members, came up with this diagram of, of these different layers of human time. These layers moving at different speeds. And the slowest and longest being nature and the fastest being you know, fashion and, and technology on the outside. And in between are layers like commerce and governance and, and infrastructure and things like that. So finding where, the, where people skip those layers in projects is usually where problems occur. So, for instance, if you are harvesting old-growth redwoods in order to pay off a debt of Pacific lumber to get back your quarterly profits, these are the types of things where you know you are making a big mistake. And when you can't invest in a project like education or hunger because the return on that investment comes back later than a political cycle will make it a benefit to the current political system, you know that there's a problem. So these are the types of things that we are looking for and want to point out, uh, not to say that everything should move slower necessarily. Alexander Rose is the executive director of the Long Now Foundation, and you can find out more about their projects online at longnow.org. I'm Bonnie Swift for the Stanford Storytelling Project.